It is a beautiful morning. Um, it's great to be here in the house of God, um, worshiping. And you know, <clears throat> it's great to hear from the word from the Word of God as well. It's not so great when He's making you obey something that you don't want to do, right? Uh, but we have prayed. Janice has prayed. Um, Ted has prayed, the prayer team has prayed, the circle before the service up here has prayed that we would have ears to hear, that we would listen, um, because God wants to say something today. Amen? Amen. That's why he gave us his word. Um, Last weekend, um, I experienced a joyful first. I got the chance to watch my grandson play baseball. Actually, it wasn't playing baseball. He's not even three yet, so technically it's not really baseball. But um, they, they kind of roll the ball back and forth and try to locate it on the turf, you know. Um, he wasn't throwing overhand. He was, you know, throwing it underhand. Oh, and it wasn't really a baseball either. It was a wiffle ball. But, um, you know, he was swinging and swinging at the, the ball on the tee and occasionally would make contact. So it was sort of baseball. You know, they're kind of getting them the idea of, of what sports is about. He did run bases, though. Not necessarily in the right order, but he did run bases. And, and once he actually got to first base and he, and he picked it up and he started to carry it over to the coach. And I, I thought maybe the coach had mentioned something about stealing bases and Asher wasn't quite sure what that meant. Or maybe he did, and that's why he picked it up and he was stealing it, I don't know. But it was really cool for this sports fanatic papa to be able to watch him play a sport for the first time. And uh, out of, uh, as we were going out of the facility, facility, on the way out, Janice and I were, were walking out. An interesting feeling came over me. There was this pang of, of sadness. And I said to Janice, you know, my mom never got a chance to experience this, to watch my kids play sports. And she was a sports fanatic, especially a Flyers fan. And some of you knew my mom. Um, She was in this church. She was in the church kitchen. She was in all the nurseries. She was a real servant behind the scenes. But my mom didn't get a chance to see that with her grandkids because when she was 61 years old, she died of lung cancer, and she went home to be with the Lord. And my kids were pretty little. So she never got got to see them throw a ball or steal a base. She didn't get to see them grow up or graduate or any of that. And even though she never smoked a day in her life, um, it only took three months for the cancer to take her. I argued intensely with God. I was angry. I had irrational thoughts that I felt free to share with him. Um, I knew in my head the theology of his sovereignty but it wasn't helping my heart at all at the time. And I asked why many, many times. What do you do with tragedy? It strikes all of us. What do you do with the pain? What do you do with the questions? And what do you do with him when tragedy strikes? There's one book in the Bible that deals entirely with that, tra- that subject of tragedy. And it bears the name of the man toward whom all the tragedy was directed. And we're told that all of the trouble that Job experienced was actually undeserved. 
But the whole book deals with this subject, which touches all of us. So if you would, turn in your Bible or, or swipe to the first chapter of Job. And what we're going to do is we're going to invite his trouble into our morning so we can learn from it. Because some of us, some of us need this help right now. And the rest of us, we're going to need it in the future because we can't escape it. Tragedy comes in our lives. But God has a word for it. He has a word for us to learn uh, uh, today. In uh, Job chapter 1, we read that uh, Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He was wealthy. Uh, he had a large family. He had all kinds of property. But more importantly, in verse 1 of chapter 1, it's revealed to us that Job was blameless and upright, and he feared God, and he shunned evil. Here's a wealthy, godly, which is tough to get those two things in the same sentence, in the same person. But here's a wealthy, godly man, respected in the Middle East. And we learn that, that Job had ten kids, and they liked to party. And if you were to take the time to read the rest of chapter 1... Uh, it tells us that Job would make 10 sacrifices, one for each of his children, and pray for them just in case somebody, one of them, happened to sin. But during one of these sibling bashes, two raiding parties came and made off with all of Job's possessions, his oxen, his sheep, his camels, his servants. But then a terrible storm came upon the house where they were. And we read, that's where the real tragedy struck. The home where his kids were was destroyed. In fact, it says the roof collapsed. So whether it was a tornado or a great wind, we, we don't know exactly, but it destroyed the home and it took the lives of all of his children. That's a tragedy times 10. All 10 kids were gone, as well as his possessions, his employees. Job was ruined financially. And more importantly, and probably more deeply, he was devastated personally because his family was gone. Everything's gone. Total emotional, personal, financial collapse. We can only imagine the pain. We can only imagine the loss. And maybe we can actually, in some way, feel the questions that he would have. He had sacrificed, he had prayed for each one of them regularly, and yet... This happens. How do you make sense out of that? How is he going to make ends meet? How is he, is he going to recover from the loss of everything and the loss of everybody that he loved? So I want to pause for a moment and just ask you, what tragedy has collapsed on you? Maybe it happened 30 years ago. Maybe the storm is just brewing and you can see it coming. Maybe it's right now. What are you going to do? How are we going to respond? How do we react right now? How do we talk with God when this is going to happen? Well, what about Job? What we're going to do is we're going to look at Job. How, do he, how did he handle the pain, the questions, the aftermath? How did he do it? But before we look at what Job did and what Job said, there's an incredibly important truth that we cannot pass over. 
because it makes a major difference when we try to process our own trauma and our own tragedies that come upon us. Something preceded Job's horrible human tragedy. There was a heavenly challenge that preceded Job's tragedy. And we read about that in chapter 1. Before the the collapse in Job's, Job's life, there was a challenge at God's throne. Something was going on spiritually and in heaven before the tragedy struck earth. And that is an incredible, tuck it away, because that's an incredible truth we have to hold on to as we process our own tragedies. Let's read what precedes his tragedy. Um, It was a sort of a face-off in heaven, okay? So, the tragedy. The scripture says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came in with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Job's doing great, God Almighty. Of course he's going to follow you. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. This is a face-off in the throne room of God. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is not a fairy tale. This is not uh, an allegory. This is a revelation that God has given to us in his word. It's a, and it's revealed to us, the readers, that something was going on in heaven prior to the trouble on earth. And it was high-level stuff. It was Satan. The adversary is actually the word. The adversary challenging God Almighty and a godly believer was the target. That's an incredible revelation. Now, I doubt that, that Satan himself <clears throat> personally is involved in our tragedies directly. I think he has higher, higher value targets, but we do know there are spiritual forces that are working behind the scenes to derail the believer. There is no doubt about that in Scripture. And these words that were given here in Job chapter 1 do more than just set up the story. This revelation draws us to a truth that helps us quiet the storm that's building around us. It, it helps us settle the foundations that are beginning to quake when we experience tragedy. Because this is what this revelation tells us. It tells us, if you get nothing else in this sermon, this is it right here. Everything that happens to you is father-filtered. Every tough time, every tragedy, every question, God, this doesn't make sense. It's been father-filtered in heaven. Even the bad stuff, especially the bad stuff. Everything that happens to you is father-filtered. Do you notice the adversary had to ask permission from God Almighty? It wasn't going to happen. 
unless God allowed it. Do you remember when Jesus uh, was uh, approaching the cross and, and he was coming to the end of his human life? He confronts his disciples knowing that they were going to be tempted to abandon him. And, and Peter's like, no way, Jesus. We've been with you. We love you. We'll follow you to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. What was Satan doing? The scripture says Satan was getting ready to sift them, to test them, to attack them. But he had to ask first. Just like with Job. And just like with you. So in our troubles, one of the most important things we need to understand from the get-go is that there's something going on in the spiritual realm, something going on in the, uh, behind the scenes with spiritual forces. We may not ever understand it. We're, we don't even know if Job was told this. But none of it occurs without God's permission. Everything that happens to you even and especially the trauma and tragedy is father-filtered. Now, from what we read, Job doesn't know about the challenge that preceded his tragedy. He's unaware of the spiritual forces working against him, and he's also unaware of the sovereign allowances that are working for him during this time. And his friends, who came along a little bit later, we're not going to read all. I mean, it's, there's over 40 chapters. But much of it, his friends are coming along to try to help him in his struggle. They, too, were unaware of Satan's attack and God's allowances, God's will in Job's life. So being unaware of the spiritual story behind his own story, Job is tempted, as we all are, to respond to tragedy in frustration and confusion and anger and disillusionment. That's what we read through a lot of his responses in this book. So what are some of the temptations that he faces personally as he's responding to, reacting to his tragedy? Well, the first temptation is unveiled in his initial response to what happened. So we have this challenge that happens in heaven and then this tragedy that happens on earth and how did Job first respond? We read, when he hears the news, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He was devastated. He fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The initial title of this message was The Saintly Sinner. We do find out that Job repents a little bit later on. But through much of the story, he's really a saint. This first temptation, which, this first test, which Job passed, was a temptation to look at our tragedy and say, God, you made a mistake. You did something wrong. 
The temptation is to look at our tragedy and conclude, God, you're not good. You can't possibly be. Look at what just happened. He messed up. I'm sure Job felt the pain of every loss, but he concluded from what he knew about God that God didn't make a mistake. There must be something else going on. And as sad as the situation was, he acknowledged it and he kept his lips from blaming God of making a mistake. And that's the first temptation, the first test that he passed. Now, Satan wasn't very happy with this, of course. And so there was another face-off with the Almighty. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, Satan comes again and he says, Skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. Now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And hence the saintly sinner. You know what his wife was attempting him to say? His wife was tempting him to say, God doesn't care. God, you just don't care. That's why this is happening. There's no use, Job. Your life, our life is over just end it because God doesn't care. I know you've felt that before as you're experiencing trouble. God, why are you doing this? Don't you care? A am I wrong about who you are? But here's Job, although he's in excruciating emotional and, 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 and physical pain now, he refuses to sin by saying, God, you don't care. Don't forget his wife was suffering too. They were her kids. It was her life too. And she just wanted him to just give up and die. And that is too real of a temptation in today's world as well. Right now, statistics show us that 132 people will end their lives with suicide in one day. It would take only two days to empty this church if we follow the statistics. And that's horrific. These are individuals who come to the conclusion that nobody, including God, nobody cares about them. And that's what our adversary wants to teach people through tragedy, that God doesn't care God's made a mistake, and nothing can be further from the real truth. And Job knows it. And so in, in faith and in courage, he says, shall we accept good from God only? Or should we also not expect trouble? As I said, three friends show up to console him, and they start out really well. They sit down for seven days just to listen. 
no talking. It was great. But, but after seven days, they had to say something. And so they begin to help Job understand why he, this is happening to him. And collectively, their conclusion is this. Job, you must have done something wrong to experience this kind of tragedy. Job, it's got to be your fault. It can't be God's causing. You had to cause it. It's your fault. Because they say that's the way God works. Job disagrees. Even with all of his questions, he disagrees. And he even asks God to show him, if that's true, what, what he has done. In chapter 6, verse 24, he says to the Lord, teach me and I will be quiet Show me where I have been wrong. I need to know why this is happening. And if I've done something wrong to cause this, please show me. In Job 7, uh, verse, uh, verse 20, chapter 7, verse 20, If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of misery? Why have you made me your target? So Job was even saying, God, if I did something wrong to cause this, please show it to me. And here we learn a very important truth. Asking why is not a sin. If it was, you might as well toss out about three quarters of the book of Psalms. <laughs> because there's a lot of people, you might as well toss out the whole book of Lamentations. <laughs> Lamentations. Asking why is not a sin. It's one of the biggest questions, if not the biggest questions, when we're suffering from trauma, tragedy, and its aftermath. Why? Why? I remember when um, I was struggling with the fact that my mom was, was probably going to pass so early in, in her life, uh, in our lives. I remember asking God, you know, so help me if you're doing this to teach me a lesson or teach my dad something important. That's going to really make me angry. Those aren't the words that I use, but from the pulpit, that's what I'll, it's going to make me really angry. Or if you're, if you're dragging me through this so that as a pastor, someday I will be able to authentically sympathize and empathize and help someone who's going through the same thing, that's, that's just going to really make me mad. Why are you doing this? I remember sitting with my dad. He, his father was an alcoholic his whole life. And as he was uh, being operated on for his alcoholism, uh, the Lord spoke to my uncle. My uncle came out and said, Pop-Pop's going to live three years. He's going to become a Christian because he wasn't a believer yet. The whole family were Christians. Four of them became pastors. Pop-Pop's going to live three years. He's going to uh, become a Christian. He's never going to touch the bottle again. And all three things happened. But my dad was looking at my mom and saying, they're not the same. Give me three more years. Look, my, my dad was an alcoholic, and you gave him three more years. Why wouldn't you do this for my wife? Why? Asking why is not a sin. If God didn't make a mistake, and if he is caring, then why? That gut-wrenching, unanswered question easily leads us to this third temptation in tragedy. And, and that, that uh, temptation is this. If, 
if you didn't make a mistake and if you do care, then it must be that you're just unfair. Job says in chapter 27, verse 2, as surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul. There must be something that's just unfair. God, where is the justice? Where is the reward for following you? And God doesn't answer Job. His friends keep yammering on, but there's no word from God. Listen to, listen to how he struggles in his relationship with God. And maybe you can also relate to this. He says uh, in chapter 29, How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through the darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. It's as if God is silent and nowhere to be found in his tragedy. Friends, I've been there. Some of you have been there. And you know, if you're serious about following Jesus, you will be in this place because Jesus promised we will have trouble. God, did you mess up? Don't you care? This is so unfair. Why, 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 why is this happening to me? Look how he finishes his lament. As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, and my tongue will utter no deceit. I don't get it, God. All I work for, all my family, my friends are no help, and you're not around to answer me. Answer me. But nevertheless... I can't cross that line to become your adversary and speak against you. I just can't. Whew, that is powerful. That is powerful. How? How did Job do that? What was inside of him so that in his pain, his intense pain, he was able to say, I've got all these questions and I'm not getting answers and I long to be with you again. In our intimate friendship, but I'm not going to speak against you. How did he do it? Well, it's right in the center of the book. Right in the center of the book, we see his secret for triumphing over tragedy, or shall I say, in the midst of tragedy. Job 19, 25 through 27. If you do not have this underlined in your book, in your Bible, you need to do it. In the middle of his tragedy, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. This is not the end, Job says. In the end, he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me for that time. In the middle of tragedy, in the middle of the book, he says, with all the things that, all the questions that I have, I know my Redeemer lives. He's going to redeem me, and he's going to redeem my tragedy. And I get to see him someday with my own eyes. 
That's the rock that he's holding on to in the middle of his storm. I have a redeemer who redeems me and all of this tragedy too. And I'm going to see him with my own two eyes someday. And in the end, he says, so that means that this tragedy is not the end. In the end, my redeemer stands waiting for me so I can see him and be with him personally. That's how he was able to pass the tests. He's there for me. He's there for me. Job knows that and he holds on to that truth. But he continues to ask why, as we all do. And then, and this is critical, at near the end of his words, he demands to know why. He's not asking why. He demands to know why. And he demands an answer from the Lord. And this is where Job sins. He says this in Job 31. He says, I sign now my defense. In other words, I'm going to sign my defense form and hand it over to you, Lord. This is my claim. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely, I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give an account of every step. The words of Job are ended. Boom. I'm done. I need an answer from you, God. I've suffered enough to warrant an answer from you. I'm done. It's your turn. Give me an answer. Well, well. In chapters 38 through 41, Job finds out that you just don't talk to God like that. You can't demand an answer from God. You can ask, but you can't demand that God tell you why. Because it says to us, then the Lord spoke. Look where he spoke from. He spoke from a storm. He came at Job and he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I am going to question you, and you're going to answer me. Remember I told you at the beginning, it was it's great to come here to the house of the Lord, and we get to look into the word, and we get to hear from God. Job is silent. And God starts talking, and Job is silent. And in the ensuing chapter, chapters, God asks question upon question of Job pointing out that he has no obligation to answer Job. He always acts with purpose, and his questions pile up on top of each other, proving to Job, and by the way, any one of us going through tragedy, that he has the right to create and destroy. He has the power to tear down and raise up. He has the ability to limit and to control, even as he did with Satan, with Job. And he has that ability uh, wherever whenever and with whoever he wants. But it's all according to a purpose. Take the time to read those chapters and you'll notice that every question that he asks, it has to do with purpose. God has a purpose for doing it. What's Job's response? What would, what, would, what would your response be if God spoke to you out of a storm? We read... 
Um, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's an important phrase. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is a God of purpose. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? <laughs> well, it's me. Surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things that are too wonderful for me. God, you hold your purpose, and to me it looks like mystery, but you have a purpose. I don't know what it is, and I can't demand it of you, because you're God. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Hence the saintly sinner. He passed so many tests, but when he got to the point where he was demanding an answer from God, that's when he messed up. He repented not of asking tough questions of God. It's important to know that. He repented not of asking questions. He repented of demanding an answer from God. And this is where Job's triumph over tragedy began. It began with repentance. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says in the book of Isaiah. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength but you would have none of it. Job got to the point where he was like, yeah, this is what I need to do. Tragedy will sideline you as a Christian. You've seen it. Maybe you've experienced it. It has the power to derail your faith. And when the temptations drag you down, that God doesn't care, that God messed up, that he's just not fair, those lies begin to erode the truth in your mind and they put distance in your heart between you and God. Maybe tragedy has sidelined you. Maybe, you t maybe tragedy has taken your faith down a notch and you just can't get back up. Repentance is where the triumph begins. Your triumph over tragedy begins with repentance and that simply means turning away from the lies, turning away from one thing and towards another, turn away from the lies and to the truth. And then restoration can begin. Isaiah said, in repentance and rest is your salvation. That's where the salvation is in repentance. And your strength comes in trust. So Job, what did he have to repent of? Not the truth that he was saying. Not the tests that he passed. God commends him for that. He repented for demanding an answer from God now. And when he repented of that, the restoration began. Because we read that after the Lord had said these things to Job and Job had responded, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, one of Job's friends, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So take seven bulls and seven rams and go to Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. 
And after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. And I love that, that phrase that at the end there, especially because I'm on the latter half of my own life. God can bless us more in the end than he did in the first half of our lives. Now, Job was not going to get his children back. We know that. And somehow he had to work with his wife, who wanted him to die. So there was still work to be done. <laughs> but restoration came as a result of his repentance and submission to God's purpose, as mysterious as it can be. So how, how does God restore on the other side of tragedy? Job got more possessions and a, and a second family. But what does that look like for us? Well, tragedy can lead us either to despair or to worship. And it's our choice. Tragedy can lead us into lonely hardship or it can lead us into authentic fellowship with others. It's our choice. Tragedy can lead you to isolation or to renewed relationships. As we submit to God, it's our choice. Tragedy can lead us into deeper aimlessness or into deeper discipleship. Discipleship is all about direction. It actually implies the word direction. A disciple is following his Lord. And if his Lord went through trouble and suffering and tragedy, then we're going to as well in our discipleship. Tragedy can actually deepen our discipleship. Tragedy can lead us to manic ownership where we've got to hold on to everything because we've lost something and so we've got to hold on to everything or it can lead us to grateful stewardship. Job, what you have, you're a steward of that. You don't own it. Tragedy can teach us that. It can teach that most things are temporal and a few things are eternal. And the idea is to own the eternal, not the temporal. The idea is to own the eternal and just steward the temporal. Tragedy can restore us in that way. And Hebrews 12 tells us tragedy and trouble can take us from slavery to sonship. Because trauma can wrap its tentacles around us and enslave us. But when we realize that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves... And that's why we're called sons and daughters and not slaves. When we realize that, tragedy, as we process that with the Lord, can lead us to a deeper sonship and daughtership with him and not slavery. No matter what trauma, tragedy that you've experienced, no matter what seems like it's ready to collapse right now, no matter what loss continues to blanket you with sadness from the past, understand this, and this is true, believe that you are always under the entirely sovereign, the eternally loving, and ever watchful eye of God, no matter what. There's something going on spiritually that is a mystery to us, but makes perfect eternal sense to a purposeful God who loves you, cares for you, and doesn't make mistakes. 
Satan may have permission to sift you, but he does not have permission to sink you. Did you hear that? Satan may have permission to sift you, but he does not have permission from God to sink you. God is a God of power, and of, of compassion, and purpose, and that's why everything is always filtered by our Father. And so don't let tragedy wreck you. Let God restore you according to his good and eternal purpose. Place whatever tragedy, your questions, um, your why, 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 your pain into God's hands. And if you need to, repent of that demand that God tell you why now. And restoration and the process of restoration personally can begin. When my mom was sick um, and then she passed, when she was sick, she asked me to do the eulogy. She told me exactly what she wanted me to say, what song she wanted sung. And um, she said she wanted an invitation for salvation at her funeral. Um, so I did that. And um, the husband of her best friend raised his hand to receive Christ at my mom's funeral. And I thought, is that it, God? Is that the reason? And I got to tell you, humanly speaking, it wasn't sufficient for me as a son. But like Job, I didn't get an answer. But you know where I settled? All the angels in heaven above rejoiced because a soul was saved. There's still mystery about why that tragedy happened. And sometimes I even question using the word tragedy and God's eternal purpose. But I do know that if we hold on to this transforming confession in spite of tragedy or, or in the midst of tragedy, restoration begins. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I'll see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. And I make that confession. I can make it through tragedy. Let's pray. God, we do bring you our questions. We do bring you our pain. You encourage us to do that. You tell us when we, when we are weak, we are to come to you. When we are heavy laden, we are to come to you. And so I pray right now for those who are experiencing deep trouble, for those who are experiencing trauma. And it may be something that happened weeks ago, months ago, years ago, but the after effects are still enslaving them. Lord, I pray that you would convince them that you loved us, you love us, you always have loved us and help them to reject those lies that you are making a mistake, that you don't care, that you don't love us. Lord, allow them to continue to place in your lap their struggles and then allow their lips to confess by the Holy Spirit this incredible transforming confession that we know our Redeemer lives, that he is eternal, that this is not the end 
And in the end, he stands triumphant and we stand with him and see him with our own eyes. Lord, put that in our hearts, especially as we face the struggles, the tragedies, and the trauma. You loved us and you always have. And we thank you in Christ's name, amen.